Matthew chapter 4, here's where we are. No, Matthew chapter 5. Um, I, can't, I can't put enough emphasis on like, literally how truly excited I am to finally get to the red letter verses in the Gospel of Matthew. When you sit in what we are reading in regards to this biography about Jesus and his life and who he was, what he did, who he is, what he's going to do, um, it's awesome. And the testimony about him is awesome. But there's something really unique about listening to him. So I need you to have in your imagination this morning that you can just place yourself with the multitudes that are sitting down and listening to this preacher preach this message. That as we sit in the Sermon on the Mount, so it's chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be here for three to four months as we're going to go really slow through this sermon that he's preaching but at the end of this message, at the very end of chapter 7, we're told that the people that listen to these words, they're astonished. They're amazed. He is teaching like nobody that they've ever heard teach before. He's not just saying, Rabbi so-and-so said this and Rabbi so-and-so said that. He's not just regurgitating what other people have said. He is, the words that are coming out of his mouth are leaving the listeners in astonishment, not to just, you know, who he is and, and what's been going on and the healings and casting out of demons, that's that snapshot that we had of his ministry at the end of last week. But these are individuals that, you know, they've been exposed to his light, they're drawn to him, and as they're listening to his words, there's, there's just that recognition of truth, of understanding, of weight, of importance. And as we enter into the Beatitudes this morning, I want you to have that perspective. I had Jen sent out an email yesterday um, you know, with some really bold claims. The verses that we're going to cover this morning, um, this is a great place to start in marriage counseling. This is, a, this is a great place to start in parenting. This is a great place to start in just dealing with your own relationship with God. This is a great place to start in people that you're having trouble with. This is a great place to start in regards to how do you live as a Christian today in the midst of the culture that we find ourselves in. Here's a fantastic starting point as we just sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to his, word, and listen to his words. Now, in this is what we're going to go through. This is not the gospel in its entirety, for sure. But it is all-encompassing within the gospel ideas. And what I mean by that is that as Matthew is writing this message down for us, he knows the end. He knows Jesus' sacrifice, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, the sending of the Holy Spirit. That's Matthew's perspective already as he's pinning this document. As Jesus is speaking these words for the first time, that's Jesus' perspective. He knows who he is. He knows what he's here for. He knows what he's teaching and what everything is leading up to. So we don't want to, we want to be able to read into the fullness of the gospel into Jesus' teaching, even though the listeners at the point in history may not have all of that information as they're listening. We're still going to read in that extra material. 
final uh, just outline of what we're feeding into in regards to the idea of Jesus in chapter 4, verse 17, this, this message of repentance, as we follow these, uh, as we follow him through this teaching, it is going to give us this image of what a repentant life looks like, of what a changed life is. In regards to his, this exhortation, the command, warning to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we are going to get many definitions in regards to what God's kingdom and him as king is all about. And then for us as followers of Jesus, what does it look like for me? What does it look like for you? What does it look like for us to follow this one who is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, my Savior, your Savior, the one that you're yearning to see face to face. All of what he begins to address in his, you know, the beginning of his ministry as he is preaching, as he is calling those to follow him, as he is making the promise that I am going to make you to be that which I created you to be. All of that is weight as we step into the Beatitudes. All right, chapter 5, we're going to read down through verse 12. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, that he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those are the eight Beatitudes. And then he pushes into that final one, because we don't like that one very much. Blessed are you... When they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely, for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Those are the only two imperatives, the only two commands in this section. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Before we go back to the beginning, if you mark in your Bible, I want you to circle where Jesus says, this is for my sake. And then I want you to give you the weight. If I gave you this instruction as a religious teacher, and then I end this section of teaching telling you to do all of these things for my sake, how would you feel about that? 
<laughs> I don't think so, Blake. You can go be persecuted yourself. I'm not going to suffer it for you, you jerk. Right? So I want, you, I want you to sit. People are going to have that same kind of hearing and listening as Jesus is speaking these words. But there's something about him when he says that these, this behavior, all of these things, what you are doing, it is for my sake. He is revealing who he is as God in the flesh. He's not just some religious teacher. Again, he is the God of gods. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. So when he's telling us to live out our life for his sake in all of these different facets, that's, that's the weight that all of these words are to have upon. This is not for your sake. This is not for your religious duty. This is not for your spouse or your children's sake. This is for the sake of Jesus and Jesus alone. So now as we go back to the beginning, here in the scene, in the, at the end of chapter 4, we're told that the multitudes are beginning to follow him. The report of him has gone out. His fame is spreading as he is teaching and preaching and heal, healing. There his hometown is in Capernaum. And we're told that there's this day where he sees all the multitudes. And, and, and we don't know if it's like in response or he's gathering them together. Um, there's, there's a hillside uh, on the hills just north of Capernaum, there's a, there's a church that's built that, there now to commemorate this area um, where Jesus is the one who sits down and begins to teach the people. As he goes up into the hill, we're told his disciples come to him intentionally, so they're following after him. This is not just the 12, but we're clearly told there's a greater circle of disciples. He sends out 70 uh, later on that we see, but this is the disciples and the multitudes that are there listening to this. And as he sits down, this is the position of a teacher in this day. It's, uh, it's not the reason why I sit down. Just uh, I sit on a stool because I'm a pacer. I talk with my hands all the time, and I move, and I fidget. If I got a pulpit in front of me, it's something that I'm gripping. And I'm, it's just, I sit because it keeps me still, even though I still move and fidget a lot on the stool. But also, it removes any barriers for me. I'm not, I don't need to hide behind a pulpit. I don't need to hide behind anything. When I sit down and we're opening up the word together, I'm your brother, and here I am, just one beggar pulling out some, here's my life experience, and here's what the Lord has been sharing with me as we sit at his feet together. That's why I sit. As Jesus is sitting, he's seated in authority in this. And it says that he opens his mouth. It's not just a fancy way of saying that he's speaking. He's opening his mouth in a way that he is, he's, he's casting his voice so that the multitudes can hear this. And our understanding, too, is his disciples the 12 and others that would be there, they would help convey this message to those who were further out who can't hear everything, right? It's kind of this, uh, Jesus is able to get his voice 50 feet back. There's a disciple 50 feet back. And now that guy's saying the exact same thing to reach the crowds because they don't have amplification like we do. But this is the scene that is going on as he opens his mouth Blessed are the poor in spirit. The word blessed, it means to be fortunate. It means to be happy, to be blessed, to be favored by God. Um, ultimately, it's, it's, we use the word happy usually in regards to circumstance. But this is, um, 
This is Jesus defining, and he's using the word they. So he's not talking about you specifically. He's just talking about humanity in general. Here's here's an individual whose life is blessed, that is favored by God, that there is fortune from God in life. And there's also a joy, there's a happiness in regards to the circumstances that come across your path, regardless if you define them as good or as bad, you recognize that your God is in control. So that's what all these blessings, these beatitudes are in reference to with this word. But the first one that he begins with is poor in spirit. Now. I see in this a slight progression in each one of these definitions. It's not, it doesn't have to be read that way. These are all definitely linked together. You can't take one of these attributes and just remove them from another. But there is a definite order to how Jesus is teaching through these things. So the definition of being poor in spirit, the word for poor means somebody who's a beggar, somebody who is dependent and destitute of something that they need is the word for poor, for poverty. If you are poor in spirit, the word for spirit, it's it's where we get the word for wind, it's where we get the word for breath. So just think about the picture. If you are poor in breath, what are you? You're suffocating. Right? So think about that claustrophobic position and now apply that to your life spiritually. And that's what Jesus is defining. Here is a soul who recognizes the dependence and the lack that is in life spiritually. And that is the individual who is now in a ripe position to have a relationship with God. So I know for me and for many of you, this is going to be that initial catalyst where Jesus is making himself known to you in some fashion in your history, maybe even in current, where you, it's being communicated to you your utter lack. I can, I can remember the emotions that this circumstance brought about for me in history, and those emotions carry forward even to today. When I sit before the Almighty God and I compare myself to Him, I realize what a beggar I am spiritually. And this is the idea that I am spiritually dead apart from being born again by faith in Jesus Christ. Being born again from above is the idea. But why Jesus is saying the individual who is blessed, who has this kind of understanding, who has this mindset, not just at a point in history, but in an ongoing state, the contrast of the promise that he gets is as far, it's it's as far apart as you can get. Blessed is the person who is absolutely destitute and a beggar spiritually. You are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. That which is defined as what God is, you are going to inherit God, you are going to inherit his place, his creation, his kingdom, all that God is, is what you are going to inherit. Blessed are you who know and understand your utter dependence upon your creator. And oh, here's the promise, I am going to give you all. 
And it's not just a, here's your present active poverty, and here's the future passive promise that's coming to you all the way then in the future, and you just get to be a miserable wretch now today. It's no, this promise is active for you now. When you understand your poverty, when you understand your need, when you understand that you were dead in and of yourself, and you were looking to God for his spirit, for his life, for his provision. There's a, a way that he brings about his kingdom in your soul today. Amen? And out of that comes this next one. Blessed are those who mourn. And this is this idea that there is a... Uh, a mourning is, it's, there's a lament and the, again, the, the, he's using this language. He's talking about others, right? He's just talking about idea, and he's talking about people. And again, the Holy Spirit needs to apply this to your own life. But when you realize your spiritual need, there comes a point in relationship with that when you realize your actions and the things that you choose to do and think and say that they don't line up with who you want to be. They don't line up with your own rules and your own ideas. There's, there's a mourning in your own soul when you look at you. Is that fun at all? How many, and again, I don't, want to, I don't want to raise of hands, but have you ever shed tears in regards to your sin? For me, yes. There are other times when I come to confession in God where God, like, I'm, I'm recognizing my heart is calloused right now. I have lost a sensitivity in regards to my thoughts and in regards to my behavior. Yes, there's a mental recognition. Yes, there's a, there's a confession, Lord, that I'm off and I'm looking to you for cleansing and forgiveness and for reconciliation. But I know when I'm in that position where my sin doesn't bring about mourning before God. And I know for me, that's a dangerous place. As I'm sitting with prayer with God this morning, as you read through this, use this as your own devotional prayer and conversation with God. When I'm sitting with God this morning, I'm specifically asking him, God, I've got calluses and I need you to remove them. I've become desensitized to a lot of things just culturally. You know, there, there's just things that we run across all the time. And it's really easy to become insensitive to him in life. And this is that, this is that whole thing of mourning God. I'm just not just mourning for the issues and the darkness and the sins that I can find in my own soul, but in, in people that I have relationships with. And you see the, the pain and the anguish and the consequence of sin, in, in, in whether it's in the church or in your household. There's definite mourning when we see the darkness in, in this world, right? But Jesus provides us a solution in that. And the blessedness of the position of mourning, this isn't just you need to walk around and you're, and you're, you know, you're fasting and you're sackcloth and dust and ashes on your head all the time, weeping and mourning. That's not what it's in reference to. It's when you were confronted, whether it's with you or with another, 
there's, there's a lament of the soul. When Jeremiah, Jeremiah, he's known as the weeping prophet. He's the author of Lamentations as Jerusalem is getting destroyed because of their sin. There was a mourning. There was a godly lament. Blessed are those who mourn. And the promise is you're going to be comforted by the God of all comfort. And this word for comfort, this is awesome. It's, it's one who comes alongside to help. It's one of the definitions of the Holy Spirit. He is the paraclete. He is the one who comes alongside us and helps in our time of need. You have brothers and sisters in Christ. When you are mourning, when you're down and out, when life has happened and it's miserable, here others come alongside of you and help. And in that regards, in that, in that prayer to be sensitive, it's going to lead into the into merciful in a minute. Lord, I need to be a compassionate soul that when I see others who are mourning, that I'm not just going to walk on the other side like the self-righteous Pharisee. No, I'm going to come alongside the person who needs help in the moment as that good Samaritan. All of this feeds into this idea. Blessed are you who mourn. You will be comforted now and forevermore. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What a, this is an awesome word. Meek comes with the idea of gentleness and humility. Um, one of the definitions for it in history and even today is uh, that definition of a horse. A horse is a really powerful animal, right? It's like solid muscle that you get some old fat one. But think about a, a thoroughbred, ready for the track kind of horse. That animal is extremely powerful, but that animal puts under its rein, under the bit in its mouth, comes underneath the authority of its rider. That's the definition of meekness. You have power. You have ability. But the contrast between what you were able to do and what you do in action, that's the definition of meekness. Now, Jesus, of course, is that ultimate definition of meekness. In Matthew chapter 11, it's, come to me. Are you weary? Are you burdened? Come and learn from me, for I am meek. I am lowly. I am humble. I am lowly of heart is the definition that Jesus gives of himself. Come and learn from the one who is meek. The contrast between his power and what he does in action, that's, that's, that, that's that ultimate definition of power under control. Jesus is not just responding in, in regards to all of his creation in the moment. His power is reserved. He can execute us in judgment for every single sin that we commit every single time. In his holiness, in his, in his majesty, in his mercy, in his grace, in his meekness. He withholds that in action. That's this ultimate definition of meekness. But when it comes to us, there are many circumstances in life where you have the power and you have the authority to act. And act passionately and act zealously. Meekness and humility backs you away from that right and that power and directs your action towards the will and the heart of God in that moment. Because sometimes the same circumstance in moment A demands one action, in moment B it demands another action. 
And it's only through the Holy Spirit leading us in that conversation about how we are to act is where meekness comes about. And this promise to inherit the earth, so not only are you going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, but you are going to inherit the earth, God's creation. Often when you think about what we want to do in action is, is, is a way to bring about our own kingdom, our own want, our own authority, our own opinion, our own perspective in a circumstance, right? In our marriage, in our parenting, in our workplace, in the culture, there can become very righteous and powerful demands that we make. Meekness backs you away from a lot of that, pressing into prayer with the Lord, realizing Everything that you want, everything that you want to be brought about and all of its goodness and all of whatever your demands are in, in godliness and in righteousness, it's all going to come about in his time and his way. You will inherit all of him and all that he has made, which are incredible promises. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. Anybody knows what it's like to be hungry? I know what it's like to be dry. I'm sitting here a mouth breather because I'm sick, so my mouth is really dry right now, and I need water, right? To be hunger, but hunger and thirst, these are very natural, uh, physical experiences that we have every single day. You know physical pain from hunger. You know how that impacts you emotionally and even spiritually. So this idea of all of us knowing what it's like to hunger and thirst for something, we go and eat food and we drink water to satiate our body's need. Now you link that with this idea of righteousness, of justice. Do you hunger and thirst? When you look at the outside world, is there a cry for justice when we are confronted with injustice every day, yes or no? Powerfully, right? But what's being talked about, we're not talking about what you observe on the outside. Begin with you first. You can hunger and thirst for righteousness in our culture and in somebody else's life, and that's not what Jesus is trying to get at. He's trying to get at your own soul, in your own mind, in your own heart, in your own life. Do you have for you a, a, a unsatisfied yearning and longing for righteousness in your life? I do, incredibly. This, this, one, this one's not easy. This requires a lot of study. What's right? What's just? What's good? What's bad? What's wrong? What's right? This one, this requires a lot of study. It requires you to read the Word of God, but it's not just based on knowledge. It requires a lot of wisdom. You can have the dictionary and encyclopedia of facts, but if you don't know how to apply it in you, and you don't know how to apply it in your circumstance, the knowledge doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't do anything for me. So we need knowledge. We need wisdom. We need discernment. As I learn, and I'm, I'm five years old, how I'm able to live out this verse is different than when I'm 50 years old, right? This is, this is a lifelong 
process. This is, this is a sanctification process. There's a maturing process. There's a growing process. But there, there must be, in your relationship with Jesus, there must be a recognition and a yearning for righteousness and justice. And let it begin with you first before you begin demanding righteousness in your spouse's life before you begin demanding righteousness in your children's life, before you begin demanding righteousness in the church and in the pastor and your brothers and sisters in the culture, make sure this Jesus is getting at me and he's getting at you. He's using this conversation of them, but this is a prayer conversation between you and him. Do you recognize your poverty in spirit and your dependence upon him? Do you have a true sensitivity to your own sin, your own issues, your own brokenness? Does it bring about lament and concern and action and attention in your life, trusting that God's going to not keep you there and press you down, but he's going to bring about his comfort in your soul? Do you feel this emotion of, of what it means to, he's given me power in my life, but he's actually asking you to be restrained. You have all liberty, you have all freedom, but he's asking you to be restrained in so many different ways in our life. Do you have in your core, for you first, a true hunger and thirst for righteousness and then the promise? Your food is not going to satisfy this desire. Your, your, even your life experiences, your knowledge, your wisdom, the only thing that is going to satisfy your, your yearning in this is from God to fill you. And this whole idea of fill, it's not so that, you know, your stomach's so pumped full of righteousness that it's coming out your esophagus and your nose. That's not the visual. That there's this, when we seek God for his righteousness, for his truth, for myself and for others, there is a true satiation that comes about. There's a filling. There's, there's a peace. There's a recognition. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy has this whole, its, its weight and emphasis is the idea of compassion. We are told often that when Jesus looked on the multitudes, he had compassion for human beings. He had compassion for them because he saw people as sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion for people because their shepherds so often were wicked and abusive and not the godly shepherds that they were supposed to be. There's this, there's this uh, recognition when you know that you have been the recipient of mercy that is a great catalyst for you to be merciful and compassionate to other people in your life. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. If you know, if you have an inkling of what God has protected you from, 
of what God has withheld in judgment against you. This is one of the ideas of mercy, that God has not given to you what you deserve. Grace being that opposite of God has given to you what you don't deserve. But do you have this understanding? Do you have, again, just in just a little bit of what it is and how God has demonstrated his mercy towards you personally? Out of that recognition, out of that position, that enables you to become extremely merciful towards other people. Now, mercy is not blind. God has not been merciful to me because um, I have not sought mercy. God has been merciful to me because I have sought his mercy. I forget, this is a... um, uh, it's in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus gives a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two guys go up and they're praying before God at the temple. And you have the Pharisee that's standing before God, telling God about, God, I am so great. I fast every day. I tithe. I pray. I'm not like this dirtbag tax collector over here. God, thank you that I'm so cool. That's his attitude before God. That guy's not merciful. And then Jesus gives the heart of the tax collector, beating his breast, not even willing, again, position of prayer of lifting your eyes up to heaven. This man not even willing to lift his gaze up to heaven. Be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. This is, this is a cyclical uh, relationship and mercy. Blessed are the merciful you shall receive mercy. But the merciful are merciful because they have received mercy. And the more mercy you receive, the more mercy you want to give. But again, this isn't blind. This isn't granting mercy to those who are not seeking mercy. You have to be cautious. God is not automatically merciful and withholding to those who don't seek mercy. But if you seek mercy... You seek his mercy, you will absolutely have his mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Another awesome definition. Purity is the whole idea of being clean uh, without impurities. Uh, When John the Baptist said that Jesus is the one who is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, the baptism of fire is this idea of burning out the impurities of our souls. We all recognize that we're a mixed bag in a lot of ways. The idea of that individual who is pure in heart, these impurities are being whittled out of our souls over time. But there's, this, there's, this, there's a pursuit of it. One of my favorite passages and promises in God's word is in 1 John chapter 3. And it's this promise that there is a, if you have a yearning and if you have a longing to see God, that yearning and that longing and that recognition that you're aimed at him and he is your hope, that hope has a purifying effect in your life. 
that hope is going to help you remain aimed at him because if he's your goal to see, that's going to be a constant attention in your life and that's going to help God bring about his purity and his cleanliness in your soul. Does that make sense? And that's why Jesus, well, that's why John teaches that in 1 John because he's picking up on exactly what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are the pure in heart. For you will see God. There's, there's this promise of, and again, all of this is cyclical and going hand in hand. If you're longing and if your desire as a follower, as one who is seeking to be changed and transformed, if your hope is that you are going to see God face to face and you are going to know him then, just as he knows you now, what an incredible promise. That is a promise that keeps me, and I know it. That is a promise that purifies my own soul. I know it. I've experienced it for the last 20 years. And again, sitting with God in prayer in this passage this morning, Lord, work out of me those things that my vision wants to attend to that's not you. So that your purity can continue to be worked into me. Because, Lord, there's still things that need to be worked out. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Awesome exhortation and awesome promise. We already had in chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism, the Father declaring from heaven, This is my beloved Son. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are told that we are adopted as the children of God, the sons and daughters of God. So here is a link of the promise to be made like the beloved son of God, being promised to those who are acting like the son of God. And this is the ultimate definition. Jesus is the prince of peace. But when you look at what it is that he did in creation, what it is that he has done all throughout the history of humanity and the pages of the Old Testament, what it is that he did in his humanity, what he is pursuing today is that to make reconciliation, to make peace between God and man. The word of God communicates to us very clearly that God has wrath towards man because of sin. That there is no appeasement of God's wrath. There is no atoning for God's wrath. There is no removal of the wrath of God and the consequences of that wrath, which is ultimately death, which is separation from him. If that is... God's attitude towards men and women who have not been forgiven. You look at the mission and what Jesus did on the cross and what he is conveying and what he is calling us to do to be ambassadors and proclaimers of the gospel and other people's life. It is to be a peacemaker, to be just like him. Here is how that wrath is removed and here is how peace is brought between you and God. Ultimately, that's what the relationship is all about. When you have peace with God, 
there is a natural desire to want to go out and help others find that exact same peace with your maker. When you see conflict, when you have, con I told you, this is like marriage counseling 101 right here. If you have a conflict in your marriage, you have a conflict in parenting, you have a conflict with your coworker. your call is not to be that authoritative judge and go and condemn, and this is where you're wrong, and here's the consequences, and here's the punishment. Hear the proclamation of Jesus. Throughout all of this, you need to hear his tone. Right? There, there's, a, there's a passion. There's a, there's a love. There's a, there's a definition for anybody who wants a relationship with God. Here's an invitation into each one of these characteristics and the promises that will come your way. You go into those circumstances seeking peace just as the peacemaker, our God, stepped into flesh to seek to make peace between his father and you. Cool picture? I think it's an awesome picture. Now, does everybody want to receive peace with you? Does everybody want you entering into their circumstances and being a mediator of peace? Yes or no? Some people are going to hate you for being peaceful? It's crazy. But that's where this is not only, I see a progression, but this is very much an order. Because if you want, if you're in agreement and you recognize in the Holy Spirit and you're sitting at the feet of Jesus and you're listening to all these definitions right now and your soul is crying out, Lord, make this me. Blessed are you when they persecute you for righteousness sake. And he closes, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. He gives the same bookend. The poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, yours is the kingdom of heaven. He's bookending the teaching and the subject matter and what he's conveying in this. But what he's teaching is that not everybody is going to press into this message skipping. There's going to be a lot of people that when they hear this kind of message, they are going to scream loudly against it. Why? If, if you've been raised in the church, if you've been a Christian for a long time, if you've been following Jesus, a lot, a lot of this stuff is like kind of duh, right? Because it's Christianity 101. We know these things. We've, we've sat through these teachings before. They're awesome and we yearn for it. We forget how counter, not only countercultural these ideas are and how radical these ideas are, but these are very counter flesh. These are the very opposite things that we pursue naturally. So when we sit in our relationships with other human beings and we are living this life out, this is a life that stands in contrast to many of the other teachings that we would sit in within our own culture. This is how you be a man. This is how you be a woman. This is how you be a good citizen. This is how you excel in business. This is how you whatever. It's counter to the messages that we hear in the promotion of self and how you help yourself in this life. Therefore, persecution is going to come for righteousness sake. Again, this gets back to if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's not based on your definition. 
It's based on his definition. He's the creator. They're his rules. They're his commands. If he says yes, that means yes. If he says no, that means no. There's no negotiation. There's no wiggle room. Yeah, we have gray areas, but in those gray areas, we take the known areas and apply them through wisdom, knowledge, discernment in those areas of life, correct? But the emphasis, he links, it's not that you're being persecuted because you are who you are or because you go to this church or because you're promoting this person's ideas. It's righteousness sake and my sake, Jesus links. And everything that he's just communicated into these blessings, into these happies, into these here is the fortunate and favored life in God. There will be a persecution in your life and it can come from a spouse, it can come from parents, it can come from children, best friends, you know, people who say stuff about you that actually really hurts, that Jesus says, blessed are you when they revile you, they're mocking you, they're slandering you. That's what it means to be a Christian. They're saying all kinds of evil against you, giving all these definitions for why you're a believer in Jesus, why you do the things that you do. If you're a Christian, you must be a bigot. You must be racist. You must be anti-woman. You must be anti-black. You must be anti-this and anti-that. All of this reviling, all of these Evil, and again, the word for evil there, it's not just evil as in bad, it's evil as in poneros, which is, it's specifically twisted and malicious. When they say all these things about you, for my sake, Jesus says, for your relationship with me, because you have recognized your own poverty, you have a mourning, and you recognize this lack in your soul, you're looking to Jesus to provide for you the definition of righteousness and justice to satisfy that. You're the recipient of mercy, so therefore you're being merciful. All of these things that he's already defined, blessed are you. When human beings, when the world systems, and even when spiritual creatures come against you, and hate you, and persecute you, and attack you for my namesake, what does Jesus say? Start dancing. Anybody? Any of you ever just been kicked where it hurts by somebody's words? Has anybody ever, has anybody ever made fun of you just because you love Jesus? I mean, even, even the simple teasing. What do you want to do? I want to right back at him, right? But no, he tells me to be meek. I have the power to lash. I'm going to hold back and be yoked to Jesus and learn from him. In the midst of whether this is an emotional pain, this is a physical pain, this is a spiritual pain, this is in your own household, this is in your culture, 
Jesus is telling you in your relationship with God, in this, in this whole scenario, and again, none of these ideas are independent from each other. As they're all linked together, Jesus is commanding us to get our eyes on heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. There is a promise of eternity. There is a promise of him. There's the promise of perfection. All of those promises, yeah, they're coming in the future. But all of that, you can pull into your context today. That even as you're mourning and weeping, he's telling you and giving you that encouragement, you still have the right to start leaping for joy. Even when the mourning is, there's something really bad going on in this person's life. There is still hope. There is still joy. There is still rejoicing. There is still reason for gladness. You know what the fix is. And all you have to do or all that person has to do is turn in to Jesus and become his follower and become his learner and to be remade and to be transformed by his image. Ultimately, these beatitudes, they are imaging for us Jesus to ourselves. And as he transforms us into his likeness, we begin to image him to those around us. And this becomes the foundation and the bedrock of all of Jesus' teachings. As you think about him going from community to community to community, he's giving this same message repetitiously. And this is the reason why Matthew and the Holy Spirit begin with Jesus' public teaching with these favored attributes of the soul who has repented and who is looking for him and who is following him. Yes? Do you want these? They are yours today, tomorrow, and forevermore in our Savior. Amen. All right, worship team's coming up. And before they get up here, I'm leaving the building. No, I'm not Elvis, but Elvis is going to leave the building. <laughs> Enjoy your worship. Enjoy communion. Pray nobody else gets sick because of me. And may you, may you truly, may you, just, may you just sit at the feet of Jesus in these words, not only in this moment right, right now, but take these words with you home. Take the hour, take the two hours and sit in these words in prayer with Jesus. Don't have any of your commentaries, don't have anything else. Just sit in these words and what Jesus is teaching and begin to pray through this and see what the Holy Spirit speaks to your own soul, to where he's going to correct, to where he's going to comfort, to where he's going to encourage, and really for you to start owning these promises that he has promised to each and every one of us individually to all of those who want these. And they link to all those promises in Revelation 2 and 3. There's more study for you too. Love you guys. Goodbye.